0: Welcome to part two of chapter 14, Letters of Intent. Reminder, this is Venture Deals. Aaron and I are reviewing a book by Brad Feld and Jason Mendelsohn called Venture Deals, Be Smarter Than Your Lawyer and Venture Capitalist. If you're just jumping into this podcast for the first time, it's going to be very awkward. It'll be a really weird time to be jumping in. Stop listening. Go back to
1: episode one, chapter one.
0: First, find, review, and rate us on iTunes. And then... All right. Five stars only. Five stars. That's true. If not, email Nikki. If you have less than five stars, email Nikki. Okay. Let's let's get into part two of Letters of Intent, the other term sheet. Aaron, just like part one, I thought part two was really, really informative. As a lawyer, I found this to be really interesting because it's a lot easier of a read than what we typically are reading yeah. on this sort of stuff, whether we're reading documents or treatises or you know white papers written by other lawyers. But I thought it was really germane and to the point and uh, you know, and well done and, and applicable. Those are my overall thoughts on part two. Uh, I wanted to just break it down by section and go through and share some thoughts on it. You good with that, Aaron? Sounds good. Okay. So confidentiality, NDAs, we're at 189, which is where we broke this up. Confidentiality, non-disclosure agreements. We've talked about this before. When you're talking to venture investors, are you sending out NDAs, Aaron? No, God, no. What do we do with our clients who email us and say, hey, I'm going to go talk to this investor. Can you send me an NDA?
1: We laugh at them and then we <laughs> delete their emails.
0: <laughs> go find a different attorney. No, we don't quite take that step. But Aaron and I, we've been very uh, open about this. It's on our website. You know, in some of the things we blog. You don't ask your investors for NDAs. You want to, Aaron, you want to quickly recap why that is?
1: Yeah. Um, these investors are looking at. Hundreds of deals, and the likelihood that they might pass on your deal and then invest in something that is very similar. There's a good likelihood that might happen. And if they've signed an NDA with you, they don't want to be uh, worried about the fact that you might come after them and say, Well, no, 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 you didn't invest in my deal. You signed my NDA. Now you invested in this
0: one. You know, you breached some clause of the NDA, and you're going to take all my IP and give exactly. it to me. Exactly. All right. So no asking venture investors to sign NDAs. Let's move on from that point. In the context of an acquisition, an NDA, a mutual NDA, is an absolute must. And here's why. In an acquisition, first of all, they know that you're up for sale, which is important. You don't necessarily want that being public information. The fact that you're raising capital, usually not that big of a deal. Most people are okay with that being out there. But you don't want people to know that you're for sale. Secondly, if they get into any type of due diligence, they're going to find out all kinds of information about your company, good and bad. We've been very honest about this, Aaron. If you have warts, show them up front, right? I think we talked about that last week. So you don't want a potential acquirer finding out all these things about you and then walking away from the deal and having this additional information. So NDAs are basically mandatory in any sort of an acquisition Oftentimes, the definitive documents will have all kinds of confidentiality agreements or provisions drafted in them. However, it's not uncommon that I see people say, well, we already signed the NDA, so we're good from a confidentiality standpoint, which is another reason why NDAs are important early on. Going back to your first point about wanting you to sort of keep it quiet that you're up for sale
1: that I mean this extends even to employees of the company and most of the time the
0: employees don't even know that the company's going through this sales process that's a great point and there's a lot of reasons why your employees don't know you don't want any disruption in the workforce you might not yet know how you're going to handle any sort of uh, bonus payments at close or any sort of stock option grants or st- You know, new stock issuances or, you know, stock from the acquiring company. Like we talked about last episode. That's correct. There are a lot of issues concerning the employees that you might not want them to know about. All right. Employee matters are a sensitive issue. It is always best to disclose less now and more later. I see this with a lot of my founders. You know, they'll call and they'll say, well, this guy came in and asked about it. So I shut the door and I told him about it. And I ask them, why? What did that gain you? Especially before it's all
1: finalized because. Deal points might change, how you treat certain employees, who's going to stay on, that all all that might change throughout the process. And it's a lot easier to not
0: have to walk that back if somebody, if one of your employees knows about it. 100% agree. You can always tell them later. If someone does find out, say someone sees a paper on your desk or glances at an email across your screen when they're walking by, say something like, we're still working through it. It's very tenuous right now. I don't even know. The board doesn't want me talking to anyone. Uh, You know, be evasive about it. Again, you can always release more information later. Once the information is out there, you can't get it back. So be very sensitive with disclosing information to your employees and then how you're going to treat your employees as another consideration. And that's a conversation you should be having with your board. And then also leaning in your executive officers and then leaning on your attorney for, you know, for advice on what they've seen. Okay. Fees, fees, and more fees. So let's talk about the different fees that might come out of a transaction error. Not the consideration being paid from buyer to seller, but the fees. So the first one is a broker fee. Mm-hmm. Not uncommon to see a broker fee. Pretty simple. Uh, broker fees usually stated. It's a fixed percentage of the transaction value, not the cash but the transaction value, or it is a stair-stepped percentage where it's a certain amount, a certain percentage up to this amount, another percentage up to the next stair-step. Brokers serve a purpose, and they can be useful in, in some instances. If you are hiring a broker to raise your money, to help you raise money, please, please, please consult with your attorney. First because it is very rare that people in the venture world hire brokers to raise money. If you're hiring a broker to sell your company, that's not all that uncommon. But man, you need to have your attorney review that contract. Yes. And also, make sure you vet your broker. Yes. References. The same way that we've talked about vetting your VCs. Ask for references. Sit down with them. Things like that. Okay. So another fee. So that's broker fees. Then you have breakup fees, mm-hmm. which we ask for you know, when we're buyer seller side, excuse me. You don't get them all that often. You know, a breakup fee is a fee that gets paid to the seller if the transaction does not occur. So the VC or the excuse me, the acquirer comes in and says, "We're going to look at buying you. As part of that, we're going to ask you to be locked up or exclusive for 30, 45, 60, 90 days so you can't go out and flirt with any other potential acquirers." In exchange, we're going to take a good long look at your business. Now, you might say, no, 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 no. There's lots of people out there bidding for my business. There's a lot of, I'm in a very competitive environment. Shutting down for that long and not focusing on building the business or putting all this information out there puts us at risk. If you don't invest, I'm going to need a fee of 25 grand, 50 grand, 100 grand, you know, whatever it might be. I think the buyer is going to say, usually they're going to say, no, this is just not how these things work. But every once in a while, you can push through a uh, breakup fee.
1: It's also important to note that going through a sales process takes a lot of time and effort of the management of the seller. They are having to focus a lot of attention on diligence requests and meeting with the buyers and, you know, it's a big long process. And so asking, asking for a breakup fee makes sense because it's going to be taking management's time away from running the business. And at that point, the management has a good team in place that will keep the business up and running, but diverting their attention away from the the day-to-day operations of the company in the event that the the deal doesn't go through, yeah, a breakup
0: breakup fee makes sense. So this is a great way to transition to another point I wanted to make. Look, breakup fees are very rare. So I would not go into a deal asking for one. There needs to be extraordinary circumstances as to why you would. Breakup fees in this context, I would say don't go into it expecting one but sure go into it asking for one i agree with that it doesn't hurt to ask just be it's like asking for more money right just be be willing to hear no but think through that before you start don't demand it it, it shouldn't right. be a condition you know to, to to exploring an acquisition you're talking about all the efforts that the seller has to put into it the buyer as well yep. right I mean, you know, we see these things, Aaron, where you get 30, 60, 90 days into it. And now you've been spending 30, 45 days just on the legal docs, and the lawyers are really into it, and the, the principals are really into it, and there's a lot of money that's been invested into it. It's hard for them to walk away as well, the same right. way it is for you. So the deeper you can get in the process, the higher the likelihood there is of the deal closing, even if there are some warts that show up or some adverse you know, changes that, that pop up at the last second. The entrepreneur's perspective here says, yeah, the buyers are in a significant legal and due diligence process, and they might be emotionally and financially committed as well. So don't think that you have to have a breakup fee in order to incentivize them to close a deal because just human nature and the way that these things get done is oftentimes enough. So there's these sections in the term sheet called, or in the LOI, excuse me, called conditions to close. Uh, Conditions to close just means there's other things that have to happen. Prior to us closing, usually it's just customary due diligence or approval by the acquirer's board or whoever you know has financial makes financial decisions for the business. There's other ones, right, Aaron? Sometimes it might be the business has to stay operating, or maybe you're one or two milestones away. You got to hit these milestones. Um, you can't expand into new markets, or you have to expand into a mark into a new market. So there could be other conditions to close. If you are going to negotiate conditions to close, just make sure you're putting things in there that aren't going to disrupt your business if you don't close, right? Like don't promise to do something that you wouldn't want to do otherwise.
1: Yes. Don't, don't put a condition to close in there. That is only to satisfy the buyer.
0: Oh, like we're going to convert to a Nevada LLC, right? We're going to go through this painful process of converting to an LLC because it's better for the, for the buyer. If you're not willing to do that otherwise, then don't do it unless that would be a great situation where you say, okay, tell you what, if we don't get this done, then you're going to pay for our legal plus some mm-hmm. time, right? You're going to pay yeah. 25, dollars dollars $75,000. That would be a great reason to ask for a breakup fee. All right. The next section they discuss in here is registration rights. Registration rights are about as exciting in an LOI as they are in a term sheet. This comes up when a public company is buying you, which we had one of our clients do earlier. Aaron, one of my clients just emailed me. One of our clients that we sold their business back in February. You can probably figure out who it is. No, I guess it closed in April. So April is month four. Yeah, the lockup period just mm, expired. Right? I think yeah. we closed in April. By the time the stock was issued, it was May because you look at the dates, the lockup period. So there's a six-month lockup period. Mm-hmm. And that helps. Us. These are SEC rules. helps to prevent insider trading. The lockup here is about to expire. So he's gonna be able to go out and sell. And now the cash really comes in. And he said that the stock is up a couple of points, right? It's up like three or five percent. So it's actually been beneficial to him. All right. So the registration rights here deal with the lockup period or your ability to have public stock or to sell publicly traded stock. And then the last point they talk about are shareholder representatives. You know, this is a material one for anyone with many shareholders because. Someone has to represent those shareholders' interests and or just the communications with the buyer. And that can be a real pain in the ass. I feel like the closes we've had this year, Aaron, or the, the acquisitions we've had this year have all been just the founders have done it themselves. Yeah, Because they've been relatively small or there's only – or we had some note holders, mm-hmm. right? A lot of times when the note holders all get paid off at closing or they get whatever their return is at closing. Then they're no longer shareholders or members. But if you are going to have multiple shareholders who are now going to have an interest in the acquiring company, whether because they're getting stock in the acquiring com- or the acquirer, or maybe they're tied to the earnout somehow, which would be really, really complicated, but it could happen, then yes, you're going to need to engage someone to be the shareholder representative. Make sure that they're patient, make sure that they're financially invested. Probably best if they're not working for the new company mm-hmm. for the reasons laid out here.
1: Did we. Do we specifically talk about the no shop clause? I know we mentioned we it.
0: mentioned it let's let's cover that just to make sure you want to lead that one yeah um like Kevin
1: alluded to earlier if you have a particularly hot target that you're trying to acquire, it's not uncommon in fact, even if they're not that hot it's not uncommon to see a no shop provision in a in an l o i and a no shop provision just says all right for this period of however many days forty five 90 120 however long the no shop is obviously if you're seller shorter the period the better um but during that time period you can't talk to other potential acquirers you can't go try to do the uh the acquisition dance with them and and see if they want to buy you which makes a lot of sense because the acquirer that you have entered into this no shop with is signing a term sheet that will then get the ball in motion for them to start having their lawyers look at things and, you know, maybe start talking to tax accountants and talking to CPAs and figuring out the best way to structure this deal.
0: Let's talk about extended no-shot periods. So let's just say they want a six-month no-shot period, Mm -hmm. right? Which would be incredibly aggressive. What would you be asking for if there's a six-month no-shot period? A breakup fee? For sure. Absolutely, now, the other part about a six month no shop period for a startup who might only have two to three years of operating history, six months is it 's like another you know uh, not generation it 's another era right, right in the startup 's life yeah so now you 're giving the buyer six months to review your business and then make another decision based on your financial health at that time, based on your growth metrics, based on you know whatever other metrics you might be using. So that's a pretty good look. If you're going to do anything over 45 days, 60 days is really the max. Yeah. 90, anytime we get to, we, we're at 60 and they're pushing for 90, that's usually when we are bringing back in a breakup fee, right. right? So if you do do an extended, and we've seen it, we had a client of ours who had a one-year, basically a one-year option. This term sheet was signed, was negotiated without a lot of uh, input from lawyers, right? We fought pretty aggressively with the potential acquirer over the value of the business at the end of the one year because the, the language was real loose on how, yeah. you, how you define the value of the business at that one year. Now, there was a extended period. There was a, like an extension fee in there, but it was nowhere near the value that the business has increased in that one year. So be very careful of that. Second point I want to make. We have a client right now who's got an LOI. The no-shot period has expired, okay? And the reason why, this is interesting, the reason why is the acquirer is private equity-backed. And so you got a private equity fund. Let's just make some assumptions. It's a $100 million fund. And this particular transaction is, it's actually larger. Let's say it's a $500 million fund. And this particular transaction is less than $20 million. So a big transaction, but just a small blip on the $500 million fund's radar. Well, the $500 million fund is undergoing its own capital restructuring Mm -hmm. where they're pulling in. They're changing who the largest investor in the fund is. So as a result, they said, hey, we need to pause all activities because some of us are getting out of this and we don't want any cash going out the door right. while we're getting out of it because we're taking on money. Let's just, again, gross assumptions. We're taking on $250 million from China. And so $250 million that's currently in the business is going out and they're going to retain some of the profits or tied to the current performance of the fund. So we don't want $20 million going out the door for this other acquisition. So this particular client has been kind of getting jacked around by these guys. Now, the parent principal of the acquirer acquiring company the principal is telling our client, look, this is just what's happening. We're sorry, we're still very interested. We want to stay. And our client's saying, Fine, we'll sit here for another three months. Our numbers are improving, so the price is gonna right. go up. Oh, by the way, this other guy called me, and I'm gonna go talk to him as well. Yeah. And the potential acquirer said, Okay, fine. I mean, what else are we gonna do? And they're already, you know, they've already got a lot of time and invested with us. We've been through due diligence, we've talked to their attorneys. So our client is in this position where things could get really good because now he could get into a bidding war. He could also be in a position where we just spent six months and nothing happened. Yeah. Right. And there's going to be, and there's no breakup fee currently because we let the no shop go. So he's going to end up spending, you know, tens of thousands of dollars in legal and losing some time.
1: But if that tens of thousands of legal results in the company getting an extra
0: couple of million out That's of the correct. deal, then the company's more valuable. He has more information or he and his board have more information in order to make a decision as to what their proper valuation is now. And also it's just
1: a good life lesson. That's it's correct. a good
0: experience to, you know, figure out what happens when
1: the no shop expires. You start getting interest from other acquirers. How do you handle it?
0: So we've got another client of ours, just one more anecdote, who went through a very long and drawn out Series B process. And this was somewhere in between a venture financing and an LOI because this Series B investor was going to acquire a very material stake and take out a lot of current investors, known as a secondary offering. So as a result, we had a pretty detailed LOI for that transaction and it ended up falling apart after our client had spent, we had, Two other law firms that we were working with. That we had a valuation firm and a CPA firm. So there was five professional services firms involved, and the other side was using some of the biggest law firms in the one of them. That's I'm pretty sure is the top five you know size law firm in the country. Excuse me, in the world. Our client spent somewhere between fifty and hundred thousand dollars in in professional services fees, and they looked at it and the the executives looked and said, "Well, that was a very expensive lesson, but we basically got an MBA in acquisitions now, and we'll be ready for it." So now. We're getting ready to go through the process again. this particular client thinks about three to six months probably less than that one to three months out. but what the client's doing now is setting up we're setting up meetings this week. Let's talk about what this process is going to look like. Let's build out what our ideal term sheet looks like. whether we use it or not, we right. don't know, but now we know what we're looking for right and there's and this client's getting us involved, the accountants, another law firm, and the banker. It's the whole uh, measure twice cut once right you, you want it, to be prepared exactly you want to know happening. what you're and so this client, yeah, they spent somewhere between fifty and hundred grand last time, and now they're gonna be because they're proactive about it, they're going to increase their fees by five to ten grand. But I'll be damned if they're not getting at least a million dollars in extra value yeah. out of this, right? Yeah. By, by being this prepared. So, for the more mature companies out there, I mean, heck, if everyone has the time to do that, and you know, even if you're going through your round, your your first series seed round, it's only going to take you half an hour to call me or Aaron and say, "Hey, can you walk me through this?" Mm-hmm. And I know that when you're a baby startup, everything. Every dollar matters, but think about that as an investment. Call me or Aaron, ask us for a half hour, an hour of our time to walk you through this, and we'll be able to raise more. We'll be more efficient. The valuation will be higher. Or if you have questions on, you know, what does this mean?
1: Just pepper us with questions. Sometimes it makes sense to walk through a term sheet and go paragraph by paragraph on what it all means, but sometimes you don't need that. Sometimes you just say, hey,
0: what, is, what are registration rights? Right. And I will yeah. say, I don't know what are registration <laughs> rights. <laughs> Read the book. Uh, yeah, give us a call or come on in and let's talk about these things. All right, guys. So that wraps up Chapter 14, Letters of Intent, the other term sheet. If you're listening to this chapter and you're applying it to your business, then good for you because things are looking really good for you. If you have an LOI on the horizon, you're looking at potential acquisition, just make sure you're visiting with your attorney ahead of time. The sooner the better. So we will be back. We're going to record on Monday, I believe, Aaron. Next, next Monday, Chapter 15. There's only two chapters left. Yeah. Uh, Chapter 15 is entitled, Why Do Term Sheets Even Exist? Great question. I've got a lot of thoughts on that. You know, term sheets are much more important to me today than they were nine years ago or even five years ago. And I think that's just – that signifies our own understanding, right, of attorneys of of why these things are out there. All right. So in closing – our show notes are included on the iTunes episode description. If you look in there, there's a link or you go to our website at velawoodlaw.com, Click on blogs and you'll see this podcast or this audio file with the show notes. Questions or comments, email us at podcast at velawoodlaw.com. We've got one sitting in our inbox that we need to respond to, yeah. Aaron. Follow us on Twitter at law. If there's anyone in Germany listening, we would like to buy the domain name Uh The people who sell... Vela wood, it's a type of wood in Germany, have that. So anyone out there in Germany, help us out. And then ultimately and finally, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. This is the Office Hours podcast. Oh, special this week, special content. We've got a client coming in tomorrow, and we will be discussing – it's a VC client discussing his perspective on being a VC, and we will release that later this week.
1: The Bailwood podcasts are recorded in our Dallas office in Mockingbird Station. You can find all of our podcasts, including Office Hours, Three Things, and Silicon Valley Review on the iTunes Store. For questions, comments, or suggestions, email us at podcasts at